Real life. Real life. Real life. Real life. Real life. Hey, wait a minute. What's the name of your church? Real life Christian church. Real life. Get real with another edition of Think About It. Real life messages from Pastor Dennis Rasper from Real Life Christian Church. And now, let's listen to the message from Pastor Rasper. Today we're going to look at another lie, and this is the lie of um, the marriage lies. And there's a bunch of those. This is Subtle Deception, Part 13. And so what are the marriage lies? Let me just tell you what Ron and Liz Cartwright sent me. A man and his wife walked into a dentist office, and the man said to the dentist, Doc, I'm in a real hurry. I have two buddies sitting out in my car waiting for us to play golf. And I forgot about the anesthetic. He says, so forget about the anesthetic and just pull the tooth that hurts and be done with it, okay? Uh, we have a 10 o'clock tea time. And the dentist thought to himself, hey, this guy's kind of brave asking me to pull his tooth without any anesthetic. And so the dentist said to him, which tooth is it? And the man turned to his wife and said, open your mouth, honey, and show him. All right, it's a lie. It's one of the lies. What's the lie? The lie is this. When I get married, my husband or wife's going to meet all my needs and make me happy and fill in all those voids. How many people enter marriage with that? Devils make people think that. And, and when they do, they ascribe to a human being something only that Jesus Christ can do because only Jesus Christ can make you totally happy. And that's going to happen until you get to heaven. And only Jesus Christ can fill in those voids in your life and give you total satisfaction. Another marriage lie, and the biggest marriage lie, is this, the lie of no commitment. If you're not happy, just get out of it. And it amplifies another lie. The purpose of your life is to be happy. Hey, that's a big lie. The purpose of your life is to be happy. What is the purpose of life? What is it? 1 Corinthians 10, 31, uh, Paul wrote this. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, whatever you do, whatever you do, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. So the purpose of life is not first and foremost to be happy, but in anything, and I hope you believe this, in anything, in anything, in anything, to delight yourself in doing what God wants you to do, to find your satisfaction, your happiness, if you will, in pleasing God. And God says marriage is one man and one woman until only death separates you and to live that out to live that out is a big part of it. big part of living out your purpose as a married person or living out your purpose in life so my purpose in life and your purpose in life is always to obey God whether I'm always happy or not happy and what makes me happy is obeying God's will let me say that again what makes me happy is obeying God's will and God says you can leave a re you can leave a marriage for four reasons and the first reason, obviously, is in Romans 2, and that's the death of your spouse. The second reason is in Matthew 19, and that's adultery committed against you. Jesus said you could leave a marriage if adultery is committed against you. In Matthew 19, I believe, is verse 9. But you've got to know, there's a higher road. Um, that, that is biblically acceptable to leave a marriage if adultery is committed against you. But I think that's about as far as it goes. Acceptable, biblically acceptable. I, I, there's a much higher road, and, and, and that's to forgive. And that's to forgive and make that marriage work and just, just work, work through that thing through prayer and the Word of God and forgive. And that, that, is, that is tough forgiveness, I grant you. But man, I can give you umpteen stories about people who have been through that and they have great marriages. The Bible also allows for divorce when your husband or wife leaves you because, because of your faith in Jesus Christ. They just say, I'm not where you are, and they pack up and one day they're gone and they're out of there. That's called desertion, 1 Corinthians 7. And there may be a 
fourth reason for divorce, and this is not specifically stated in the Word of God, but I think I can make a pretty good case for physical abuse. Now, I got to make this point. I'm not talking about mental abuse or verbal abuse. I'm talking about physical abuse, okay? Because I find no place in Scripture where God tells us to stay in a relationship where we're getting beat up. I don't find that. It doesn't make sense. What I do find in Scripture is God telling us when we're threatened to get out of there. I'm just thinking about the future, the great tribulation that Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 16, he says, I mean, and, 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 and Jews and Gentiles alike are going to be persecuted. And Jesus says in Matthew 24, 16, he says, let those who are in Judea, now listen, flee to the mountains. I mean, don't just stay there and get beat up by the Antichrist or by the beast. Flee to the mountains. Um, let no one on the roof of his, him, uh, of his house go down and take anything out of the house. Just get out of there. And so I believe there's license in the Bible that you don't have to stay around and let somebody hurt you physically. But here's a big deal, too. Some people stretch this abuse thing. They really stretch this abuse thing and this desertion thing, too, you know. They say, oh, oh, he or she neglects me, or, or he's married to his job. I'm abused, or I'm deserted. That is absolute nonsense. The Bible gives no license to leave a marriage for verbal abuse or neglect. Demons want you to believe that. Demonic spirits want to mess with your thinking and lie to you and lead you to believe you're on earth to be happy. And if he or she isn't making you happy, if they're not meeting your needs, then you have every right to get out of it. And that turns Christianity upside down. That makes it an all about me thing and it fits right into a me generation. Marriage is a glorious thing, and God knows that. That's why in Genesis 2.22, here's what the Bible says. God brought the woman to the man. God created the woman for the man, and he brought the woman to the man and said, and this is very important, now the two of you shall become one flesh. And we're going to see what one flesh means in a few minutes. Now the two of God brought the woman to the man and said the two of you should be one flesh. And so we're going to see that a good marriage is worth working at, folks, and a good marriage is worth fighting for. The lie of the devil is, since the purpose of, of life is to be happy, and you're not happy, you're free to get out of it and pursue your own happiness, and that blows away commitment. The lie of no commitment, because I'm looking at um, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. It says, be imitators of God. This is the NIV. Therefore, as dearly beloved children, live a life of love just as Christ loved us. And I like this, and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And so the word of God says, imitate God, imitate God, imitate God. Well, what did God do? He gave himself up, and don't miss these words, for us. He gave himself up as a living sacrifice for our sin. Genesis 3, Eve eats the fruit. She gives it to Adam, and she hands him the fruit, and she's got this look on her, in her eye. He says, you want to be happy, honey? Mama ain't happy, you ain't going to be happy, so eat this fruit, see? And um, he did. Adam was the first wimp. That brought Jesus Christ into the world. Seriously, that brought Jesus Christ into the world. At that point in time, when sin came into the world, Jesus committed himself, and we're talking about commitment. The lie of no commitment. He committed himself to being our Savior in a passage that has always moved me on when I didn't want to do something or I wanted to give up or I didn't want to follow through on commitment, is John 12, 27. This, this is personal to me, but I love John 12, 27. This is a very important passage to me. Jesus says in John 12, 27, Now my heart is troubled because he would bear in his body and his person our sin. He said, Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Father, spare me from this. Father, um, Father, get me out of this. Uh, did, did, did he want to run away from it? Listen to this. Listen, I mean, if you ever listen, listen to this. What shall I say? Father, spare me from this hour? Then a big no, an emphatic no. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. 
And I'm going through with this. I added that. Father, glorify your name. So he's not going to turn around or run or back down from the cross. Folks, that is commitment. That is commitment. Go to the Garden of Gethsemane. I mean, look at Jesus kneeling by a rock, the typical picture. And there, there, there's, there's, there's droplets of, of sweat. Blood is forming in sweat droplets on his forehead. And in Luke twenty two forty two, 42, Jesus says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. But then nevertheless, nevertheless, I love that. Um, not my will, but yours be done. He was troubled beyond anything you and I will ever experience and he stayed with it according to his Father's will. And he quotes Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You talk about commitment. I mean, folks, you want to know what commitment is? That is commitment. And this is the way the Bible puts it. He, he, he drank. Jesus drank the cup of his Father's wrath to the last drop, to the last drag for us. You talk about commitment. And you're probably sitting there saying, well, last week you said you're going to talk about marriage. It's Ephesians 5.1, imitate God himself. The Lord made a commitment. He never walked away from that commitment. He never once said, I'm in this deal to be happy and I'm not happy. Yeah, if it's your will, Father, remove this cup from me, but nevertheless, not my will, but your be done. And to keep this commitment troubled him, man. It troubled him, John 12.27. Now my heart is troubled. And what shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? No! For goodness sakes, no. It was for this very reason that I came to this hour, that I may, glor Father, glorify your name. In marriage, you made a covenant. You each promised, I give you myself, regardless of circumstances. You made a commitment, a covenant commitment. In God's eyes, you became one flesh. Now, you have to think about that whole deal of one flesh in Genesis 2.24. What does one flesh mean? God sees you as inseparable. That's how God sees you, as inseparable. He sees the two as one. You pledged yourself to love, true love. And this is what God says about true love in 1 Corinthians 13, 7 and 8. 1 Corinthians 13, this is the NIV translation. True love, notice the always here. True love always protects, it always trusts, it always hopes, and get this, true love always, always, always perseveres. It always perseveres. It always, always perseveres. And that's what Jesus did. Imitate him. That's Ephesians 5.1. The devil wants you to believe the purpose of your life is to be happy, and if you're not, do whatever you have to to be happy. He doesn't want you to think about commitment or persevering or 1 Corinthians 13.7. God's word says, don't listen to that stuff. Imitate God, Ephesians 5.1. I tried to figure out how many books there are written on marriage. And my guess, and I think I'm close, is about a quarter billion I'm serious about that. I think there's about 250 million, and I think, I'm, I think I'm close on marriage. Plus, you have mountains of tapes and mountains of CDs and mountains of DVDs. And this is only one message about marriage from God's Word. But if what I just said, if what I just said is all you have on marriage about the commitment of Jesus Christ and how you imitate Him, if that's the only thing in your life you ever hear about marriage, you have enough to have the best possible marriage on earth. But I want to look at this lady, Abigail, 1 Samuel 25. David had 600 men at this time. This is before David became king of Israel. This one, David was running from Saul. You know, he had 600 men. 
And um, he earned a living. This is how David made money. Before he became the king of Israel, when he's running from Saul, who was king at that time, the way David made a living was this. He protected landowners and their herds. And, and one day, David sent some of his guys to this, um, this guy Nabal, N-A-B-E-L, and the word Nabal means fool. And with the message, we, we've been protecting your herds, Nabal, from bandits and thieves and raiding parties. Please give me and my men some supplies. And Nabal says, David, you're a joke. You're a loser. Why should I give you anything? And David says in his anger, 1 Samuel 25, 13, he says, saddle up, guys. Nabal and anybody who works for him are dead men. Long story short, Nabal's wife. And remember, Nabal means fool. Abigail hears about this. And so she takes loads and loads of supplies out to David. She does what her husband should have done. Oh, you got to get the picture. David's on his way to Nabal's for the slaughter, man. He, he's breathing smoke. And Abigail meets him on the road. This, this is quite a woman. 1 Samuel 25. This is about verse um, 18. Abigail lost no time. She took 200 loaves of bread, 200 skins of wine. No, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep, five shears of roasted grain, and on and on and on it goes. And she says, um, go on ahead, I'll follow you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal, at least not yet. So she meets David on the road. When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off. This is verse 23. She quickly got off her donkey, and she bowed down before David with her face to the ground. And she fell at his feet and said, my Lord, that's David, let the blame for this deal be on me alone. Please let your servant speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. May my Lord pay no attention to what that wicked man referring to her husband. Now that, that's a very harsh translation. If you have the King James, it's a scoundrel. You know, I know my husband's a scoundrel. That's what she's saying. He's just like his name says. Sometimes he's a fool, it goes on to say. And folly goes with him. But as for me, your servant, I did not see the man my master sent. Now, now listen to her wisdom. She said, I know you're going to be king. I know that you're anointed king of Israel. And Saul's in king now, but one day, one day you're going to be the king. And she says in verse 31, the first Samuel 25, my master will not have this on his conscience, the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or of having avenged blood. She said, you don't want to do this. You're going to be king. You don't want this on your conscience. Yeah, those are tremendous words. I mean, that lady had a lot of wisdom. And maybe you think she did this without telling her husband. No, she told her husband. This is verse 36. When Abigail went to Nabal, her husband, he was in the house holding a banquet like that of a, like that of a king. And he was in high spirits and very drunk. And this is good. So she told him nothing until daybreak. And you know what? That's wisdom in that too. Because, because you know, when you want to say something important... You got to wait for the right time. You have to be patient and wait for the right time. Then when the morning came and Nabal was sober, his wife told him all the things she had done and his heart failed him and he became like stone. And about 10 days later, God took his life. Abigail lived with a very tough circumstance, okay? And the deal is she stayed committed to that marriage. Was she happy? Of course she wasn't always happy. And folks, the devil wants to break down marriages any way he can. And we see some special stuff in this word of God about Abigail. See, Nabal was wealthy. He wasn't going to part with any of his money. It's mine. Told David his men to get lost. And Abigail and his wife. Now, Abigail and his wife. Now, now, here's the big deal about this. Knew his weaknesses. She knew her husband. She knew his strengths, too. And so she told the people who work for Nabal, if anybody's hungry, if anybody's looking for food, if anybody's looking for help, don't go to him. 
have them come to me. I'll take care of them. That's why she said to David in verse 24, lay the blame for this on me. And in verse 25, as for me, your servant, I didn't see the men you sent. I didn't see them. I'm I'm normally on top of this. This one got by me. This is my fault. What did she do? She covered his faults. Better yet, she brought balance to that marriage and sought to make it one flesh. That whole one flesh idea is in Genesis 2.24. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And folks, one flesh means a whole lot more than physical intimacy. It means that. We'll talk about that next week. But it means you, it means you understand your husband and wife. It means you study him. And man, you know him. Do you study your husband? Do you study your wife? You know them. You know what drives them. You know where they're weak. You know, and, and, and where they are weak, you have to be strong so that marriage can literally be one flesh, so you can function as one. And Abigail knew that. One flesh means you husbands and wives, you need to decide on what's important, your values, you talk about them, and then you say, this is the direction we're going. And where one is weak, the other really needs to be strong. Nabal was not a giving person, so Abigail let all the employees know, I know this guy's weakness. If somebody needs help, bring him to me. When our kids were growing up, I'd be the easy one. I mean, the kids knew it. Dad, can we have this? Dad, can we go there? Dad, can we have a couple of dollars? Sure, yeah, here, have fun. And um, Cheryl had to say, hold on. You want this, you got to work for it. Do something special, earn it. You don't get everything you want. It's called balance. Balance. That's what one flesh is. Part of it, anyway. I believe Abigail knew what it meant to be one flesh. You address the weaknesses of your husband or wife. You got to address them, but you don't badger them. And there is a difference between addressing and badgering. Instead of constantly badgering, what you do is what Abigail did. She filled in the gaps. I, you know, I quoted Joyce Meyer a bunch of times when, when she said, she said, I have badgered my husband David mercilessly. And all he does is when I badger him like that, all he does, man, is he digs in deeper and deeper and deeper. So I quit badgering him and I started praying specifically for all this stuff that that irritates me. And guess what? Guess what? That's when he began to change. When I laid off and started praying, that's when he began to change. 1 Samuel 25 is a lesson in marriage, folks. Instead of badgering, you fill in the gaps. You understand your husband or wife is not the perfect person. He knows that, she knows that. And here's what you do. You celebrate their good points. I I turned on a a preacher that I seldom listen to. He said something that really struck me, and I wrote it down in in, in my journal. He said, celebrate your wife. Don't tolerate her. Celebrate your husband. Don't tolerate him. And I thought that was such a good, good, good comment because it said how much time we spend tolerating instead of celebrating. You say, here's where you're weak. I'll bring the balance into your life. Here's where you're strong. I love you for your weaknesses, and I'll do what I have to to bring balance into this relationship. And I love you for your strengths, and you celebrate them. And I'll tell you what, you see, you you send devils flying. This is the marriage chapter in 1 Samuel 25. I'm sure there were some good times in Abigail's and Nabal's married life. The Bible doesn't record them. I'm sure they had some good times. But but Abigail was realistic, and that's a big deal. You got to be realistic. And you say, this guy or this lady is not going to meet all my needs. He's a sinner. She's a sinner. And, you know, she even admitted he can be a scoundrel and that his name means fool. But she was committed to that marriage, and she said, I'll deal with it. So I don't meet all Cheryl's needs. She doesn't meet all mine. But I'll tell you what, we work at it. And I know wives who would love to um, 
You know, they're right-brained and they love to talk about all their deep personal feelings and all this touchy-feely, schmaltzy jazz, you know, and there's a lot who just, just want to talk about that. And they're married to a guy who's left-brained who can take anything apart and put it back together. He's got an engineer's mind or something like that. And they are not that deep. And they're in two different worlds. They have almost two different needs. But I tell you what, I know a lot of these people and they have good marriages. You know why? Commitment because they work at it. They really work at it. It goes back to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. Imitate God, meaning the Lord Jesus Christ, whose sacrifice of his life was a sweet-smelling sacrifice to God the Father. He was committed. If you're committed to that marriage, you'll understand it's all, not all about you. You're not always going to be happy, but you celebrate what you can. Commitment means this. You're realistic, but when you're committed to that marriage, you know it's not all about you. And um, you accept that, and you're committed, and, and you celebrate whatever you can. And I want to tell you, folks, staying in a marriage to one person and becoming, and, and Genesis 2.24 says, you will become one flesh. Listen, it's a process. It's a process. The Hebrew word actually means to become. You're not there yet, but you're, you're moving in that direction. You become one flesh. And if, folks, I tell you what, that's a monumental achievement. And, and it's worth everything you put into it. I said there's probably 250 million, literally, books about marriage, along with mountains of videos, DVD tapes, and CDs. And this is just one message in that mountain, but I don't want to leave this message without telling you and thinking about why the sacrifice, why the self-denial, and everything you invest in a marriage is worth it, why it's worth it. Here's one reason. To know one person so well is about as precious as anything I know. To get to know one person so, 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 so intimately, so well, I mean, you know how they think. You can't hide anything from them because they know you inside out. How long does that take? I mean, that takes years and years and years and years and years of just being with each other in every conceivable circumstance. I mean, I just, I look at John 10, 14. Jesus says, I know my sheep. Know why he knows us? Because he came into our world and lived among us. And he knows us. And for us to know somebody that intimately, folks, it takes time. It takes investment. And the more we know a person, the greater, that, the greater treasure that person becomes. Let me say that again. The more you know a person, the greater treasure that person becomes. That's why I tell, tell every, every couple in pre-marriage counseling, I say the love you know today won't even compare to the love you'll know 35 years from now. You know, this may not be a big deal, but just to know that there's one person on this earth that really, really, really cares about every detail of your life, every pain, every issue. And that's just, just simply, simply caring. You, you care about the things nobody else cares about. And people, you understand. I mean, you understand that you are married to this person. You understand. I mean, it's all understanding. You understand that they, they, they got this little stuff going on in their life, and there is nobody else in the world who cares about this little pain they have or this little thing going on in their life. There is nobody in the world who cares about that but you. And so you take the time. You drop what you're doing. You listen. You show an interest in those diddly little things so he or she knows I'm important to you. This is your partner for life. To know someone like that, to have one person like that who cares. Folks, I want to tell you that's precious beyond words. We're almost done. It's worth the sacrifice. Here's something else. I believe marriage leads us to live out the gospel in a very special way. How often we stifle what we'd like to say or, 
or, or, you know, we have to change. We have to change our schedules, our priorities. How many of us change the traditions that we're raised with, that were part of our life to meet his or her needs? You sacrifice, you give up a lot, you learn to deny yourself. And that, folks, that is the essence, that is the heart of the gospel. I mean, that's exactly what Jesus Christ did. Marriage makes the gospel more than just words on a book. Marriage, in a sense, is the gospel lived out. How about raising kids? If you're blessed to have kids and you see them grow out of this and this and this and mature, and you say, man, you finally you say, hey, you know what? We've done something right. And your kids become your friends and you squeeze the daylights out of your grandkids. And there are times when you sit, sit in a given room and you see three or four generations there. I remember sitting in our kitchen, I, I just one time I thought, there's my mom, and there, 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 there's me, and there's my kids, and there's my grandkids all around that table. I mean, there are four generations there. What's that worth? I mean, ask yourself, what is that worth? And how do you develop that, man? It's only, it's only through hanging in there. Man, it is only through commitment. I mean, what about your values? I mean, when you came into this marriage, you came into this marriage with some pretty harebrained ideas about life, but you talked through this stuff, you worked through this stuff, you decided this is right and this isn't, and we go forward and live those values as one flesh, two people, one flesh. How much better than that does it get? How about the goals you've achieved? I mean, give the glory to God for those achievements, but you did it together, and that's a big deal. There's such a thing as godly pride, and you say, thank you, Lord, for what you've done, not necessarily through me, but through us. How about the memories? Just think about your vacations. Just think about what you've done and seen and experienced together. I mean, think about the sicknesses you've gone through. Think about the challenges. Think about the times you were out of work. And some people can say this to my husband or wife had an affair. And we prayed and we worked through this whole deal. And now our marriage is better than ever. Or we went through a time when we didn't talk. She rubbed me the wrong way. I rubbed her the wrong way. We disliked each other. We disliked each other. But man, we, 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 we prayed about this. We worked through this. We, we, we did what we had to do. And we're in love, and we enjoy each other, and we enjoy being with each other, and this is my partner for life. And it was work, and it was prayer, and it was tears, and it was frustration, but man, God gave you the grace to get through all that stuff. Think About It is sponsored by Real Life Christian Church. Real Life Christian Church meets in Endeavor Middle School, 22505 26 Mile Road, just west of North Avenue in Ray, Michigan. Sunday service starts at 10 a.m. Visit us on the web at rlcc.us. Never miss a single message from Pastor Rasper. Just go to faithtalk1500.com and download the Real Life Podcast. And until next week, may God's Word do a work in you. Real Life Christian Church. Get real.